This episode of the Vincast, like so many before it, is proudly supported in part by Different Drop. Different Drop is one of the most exciting wine retailers in this country, uh, specializing in Australian wines, but not just any old Australian wines. We're talking some really small batch, artisan, uh, family-owned wines, often made in very exciting styles using different grape varieties from uh, any region you can imagine in Australia. Uh, Different Drop have a really fantastic website where they sell from. They're based in Sydney, but they can ship wines all over the country very easily and very inexpensively. And uh, and when you go to the website, you can find a whole host of uh, of different wines. It's very easy to, to search for any kind of wine style you might be interested in or any wine producer, including many former guests of this podcast. So a great way of supporting the podcast and the guests who generously donate their time is by going to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino, where you'll find uh, all the wines that they have available from previous guests of the podcast. And make sure that when you... Uh, any wine you do purchase on a different drop website, when you go through uh, to the, the, the paywall, uh, make sure to put in the special coupon code IntrepidWino and the guys at Different Drop will give you a 10% discount, which is a fantastic way to support them for supporting the former guests of the podcast who support the podcast. Episode 84 of the Vincast, I chat with Walter Speller, one of the foremost authorities on Italian wine, writing for JansesRobinson.com. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast with myself, James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And right off the bat, uh, you might be able to pick up a little bit of uh, a funny sound in my voice. Uh, I'm fighting, fighting off a cold, so I think certainly the next couple of episodes um, will uh, you'll, you'll you'll certainly hear uh, slightly uh, fluy, coldy. Uh, kind of sound to my voice, so apologies in advance. Um, I was actually um, at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival Aquapana uh, wine events uh, this past weekend, where I was able to, um, I mean, I was helping out, I was pouring and listening in to some fascinating chats about wines, wines from all over the world, which is, uh, was really a fantastic opportunity. And it also gave me an opportunity to, uh, to meet with uh, a number of different wine people who I actually was able to record a few episodes with. So you will hear in the next couple of weeks, uh, people that I was able to record with whilst they were here in Australia, including my guest for this week, Walter Speller. Uh, he is uh, originally from uh, the Netherlands, 
um, worked for many years in Berlin uh, and ended up in London where he met Chances Robinson and, uh, and was invited to start writing for her website and uh, is considered to be one of the foremost authorities on Italian wine uh, and authentic Italian wine at that. And uh, I was really, really fascinated. I sat in on, on his tasting over the weekend and looked at some wines that I'd never even seen before, a couple that I had. Uh, and so it was really great to, to chat with him and hear about his background. He's an amazing person uh, and, uh, and definitely I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, please have a listen to the end of the episode so you can find out how you can get in contact with Walter to thank him for being on the podcast. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. I would also just like to point out that uh, during our recording, uh, we were uh, unfortunately asked to vacate the room that we were recording in, so we actually popped outside to continue the recording. So you will hear a little bit of difference about halfway through the podcast. Walter, thank you very much for uh, making a bit of time uh, whilst you're here in Australia and at the end of a, a very... One wonderful weekend as part of Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and after your fantastic uh, tasting. So thank you for being on the Vincast. No, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Walter, I uh, typically start every episode of my podcast by asking my guest if they can remember the first interaction they had with wine that made them think about it in a different way and think that maybe they'd like to pursue a career in wine. Yeah, that was for me, Passarina de Frusinate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I read about these things now, um, about people, the, the first uh, key wine moment. And uh, Jancis is, is very particular because she's always talking about a certain Burgundy from 1952. Um, if I Just uh, casually? Left, yeah. Uh, as, her, as her defining moment, that I get. But Passerina de Frusinata from a Cantina Sociale that I had in, in, uh, in Berlin as my you know, eye-opening moment, the wine was absolutely nothing special. Uh, but the fact, the name, that what it evoked for me, the, the imagery, uh, the fact that something existed uh, in, the, in the area near Rome that, that carried this lofty name, and that got me hooked. Mm. The wine was nothing special, but it just, you know, drawing so many things. Um, Where are you from? Originally? I'm originally Dutch. Okay. Yes. Did your family or did your parents drink wine at all? Was wine in No. I'm, I'm in Holland at that time when I was young. Uh, drinking even water at dinner was considered um, to be unhealthy. So we never drank anything uh, at the dinner table. Only when I moved to Berlin when I was 21 uh, on a scholarship, um, Erasmus, it was called, was very popular. Everybody wanted to go to London and Florence, and I decided to go to Berlin basically because it was the only place left. That was one of the <laughs> most. <laughs> I had to get out of Holland because it was so stifling, and so people always think it's such a free and democratic country and very liberal. It is, but in a way, it's very stifling. And the there's 90, still a sort of a conservative yeah, edge to oh, it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the 1980s were not that inspirational. So I, I, I got this scholarship and. Uh, I think I was two for two, two times. I was at the University of uh, the Universiteit de Freie Universiteit in Berlin, two times, and then um, I just started to live in Berlin. It was a great, great time. It was, was there this that pre I, for the Berlin No, Wall? just immediately afterwards in 1991. Wow. That would have been incredible. and yeah, so you couldn't go to university. You didn't have time for it. It was a whole new world to explore. Yeah, and so I, this is how I got into contact with wine. Uh, basically, I met my partner, and. Um, he loved to cook and he loved wine and I was not even, you know, remotely interested in wine. Uh, when I was a student, I drank Beaujolais and, and Four Roses whiskey. 
uh, but that that triggered something. I wonder. I wonder what the common theme with those two products is. <laughs> Not expensive. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Good student, uh, student party follower. Yeah. Um, I've grown out of that, I've say. But basically, um, it was the connection to 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 food, Italian food, and then I got uh, pretty pretty quickly on the on the wine trail. Um, but. Even there in Berlin, uh, and that's not the, you know, it, it is, it is a fascinating city. It's all, it will always remain my spiritual home. Um, but it, it's not, you know, the wine scene is very, very small, of course. Yeah. Uh, and it was all about German Riesling, which uh, I learned to appreciate there because there that's was really interesting. Everything available and dry Rieslings that I later on as a wine buyer tried to introduce into uh, London and they were still on this um, medium dry Mosul wines and I was frustrated by that because I really wanted to see dry steely stuff and when I, and I was also tasting for for the international wine challenge at that time and when I was speaking to you know the buyers who were on my team uh, the people who had years and years of experience would say dry racing um, no balance and then um, I, I, they were very hard to get anyway, the dry Riesling from Germany, but there was dry Riesling from Australia. Plenty of blue nun, I'm sure. And blue nun, but I, I was working for Conran, so blue nun was not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I had these, these, all of a sudden there were these, these dry Rieslings from Australia, and I bought those. And they were an instant hit. Uh, in the restaurant. Mm. And also the French sommeliers liked them very much because they had this petrolly note. Now we would say, oh, it was too hot. But anyway, doesn't matter. These, these, these Australian Rieslings opened the door to German dry Riesling. And on the back of that, we bought them. Do you think there was any particular reason they might have been a little bit, uh, against the idea of German Riesling, was it? Was there still kind yeah, of yeah? I think, it, but about, you know, the, you know, the German selves themselves did everything they could to, 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 you know, produce the worst they could think of. Uh, I mean, on a generic level, the Blue Nun and, and Bent in the River and and whatever what they were called. Not if you taste them nowadays, they're actually absolutely not bad. Mm. They're not as bad as people always think, but they have they don't have any Riesling in them. So, but Germany became, of course, identified with that type of wine uh, whereas there's much more happening Italy has the same problem more or less because when you know talking about Italy especially in the UK market uh, it's uh, it's Prosecco and, and Pinot Grigio which sure. stands for Italy to talk up to those two brands is very very difficult firstly because Pinot Grigio is the best selling white in the UK and the US the best selling white mm. period mm. and Prosecco who makes bigger and bigger inroads worldwide uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem. But I always say the, that. The, the Pinot Grigio and Prosecco is, for me, is kind of like the matus of our gen, of, of our generation or the current generation. Well, I, I think that basically those wines speak to a different audience than I would, uh, than I speak to or that we speak to. Yeah. Uh, without wanting to sound snooty, I really don't have any problem. Really, if people enjoy Pinot Grigio or enjoy Prosecco, I think they miss out on a lot of things, but it's not up to me for them to, uh, to steer them in that direction. At, at, least, a, at least they're drinking wine. Yeah, exactly. At a certain price point, when people are willing to fork out more, uh, for, for wine, then you, you, you talk about anything else but Prosecco and Pinot Grigio. For sure. me, there are two, there's two types of, of consumers or, you know, one that wants to have a basic solid drink that they like, uh, and there's the wine lover who is more intrigued uh, by what wine stands for, you know, the whole idea behind it, the story, the complexity. And so I don't see them as the same audience. 
Yeah, uh, I course. don't feel threatened by Pinot Grigio or by Prosecco. I'm not lamenting the fact that they take market shares away. That's not true for me. Mm. So what was your first job in wine? My first job in wine was when I, um, I had just written my PhD and I was sitting at the kitchen table, um, practically learning by heart the Hugh Johnson pocket uh, guide, uh, wine guide, uh, because um, I didn't know really what to do. And at some stage, um, I heard from friends, I was uh, working in bars at that stage, that there was a, an Italian restaurant to be opened in the new center of Berlin in Mitte, uh, which was a former uh, East uh, Berlin. Um, which was uh, owned and financed by uh, one of the biggest club promoters in Berlin, and uh, that was the years of the techno scene, <laughs> Trezor. And uh, he had a partner, an uh, Italian, who became my boss, Rudy Girolo. And he was looking for people, uh, and it was very hard to find somebody who was really interested in wine, and Italian wine, and wouldn't cost a mint. <laughs> uh, and so um, they recruited me, and uh, at the beginning I was quite offended because uh, Rudy, my, my boss, uh, with whom I'm still uh, friends and we still see each other regularly, uh, he wanted me to wait tables, and I was thinking I was going to, to play this glorious role as sommelier, and he said, no, 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 that's not how we do things here. You need to be able to do everything. Mm. So you need to also be able to take uh, the order, to serve food, and, and to sell wine. So he basically taught me. I'll let you write the list, but you still have to do all of the work. No, 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 we, that was not the case at all. Um, he would write a list, but what was interesting was that he bought all the wines directly from Italy. Wow. And so at some stage, we started to work more closely together, and we would then select wines together, and he had loads of contacts. The thing was that we built up a whole list of wines that were not known in Germany because we did not have Sassicaia, we did not have Tignanella, we did not have Gaia, sure, basically because we we could never – the restaurant needed to make a profit. Mm. And so we, we had to cut out the middleman, the importer. And so basically we were forced in that direction. But it was a much more interesting way to, to, to discover new things. And what you discover then consequently have to sell. Will it sell? Will people find your wines good enough? And they did. So it was a whole list of wines that nobody knew. And we sold tons of it. Just because we were behind it, you know, we had this enthusiasm, we had discovered those wines, we bought them and we sold them, say, the next evening at the table. It was a brilliant time. Was there a certain style of wine or were there particular regions that you kind of people were? Oh, no, it was basically, but at those days, you needed to have at least three or four wines of every region and that was the, um, that was that was the lead of the wine list. So and it, it could depend. We were also very price point driven, so we needed to find really good value for money. So we were more, let's say, left field, or were more, you know, venturing outside of the really big names. So we had very little Brunello and very little Barolo, for that we w would find other things at a much better quality. Uh, much better price point, sorry, and an interesting quality, a good quality. Uh, but you have to sell it. That learned me how to explain things quickly to customers at the table without wasting too much of the time and um, convinced by the quality in the glass. It was very, very, uh, very formative that, those years. Yeah. And was this sort of when you started to get a, a little bit of a love affair with Italy and with Italian I've wines? always been in love with it because um, every holiday, and when I was living in Berlin, there were quite a lot of holidays because those were the years where, you know, money fell from trees. Uh, so every spare time was always um, uh, spent in, in Italy. So from north to south, uh, we were always there. Um, yeah, it's, the, that was always the, uh, we went to France 
always nice, uh, beautiful. We have friends in Montpellier, but Italy was and still is magical. Is there, anything, is there anything particular that you like about, you know, traveling in Italy? You know, what, what is it about the hospitality that appeals to you more? I think it's basically the enormous variation in, in, in landscape and um, from north to south. Uh, uh, there, there's an enormous diversity in one country, uh, also climatic, uh, from climate point of view, and the variety, uh, be it food, landscape or wine is impressive as a man you can never get tired of and you can never get to know it in one life that's the fascination was there a particular region that you um attached to quite early on that you was was your favorite the south certainly the south for me that represented uh the the real quote unquote the real italy uh i i'm not sure whether you can live there uh because you need to be very patient and I'm a very impatient person, so that's probably not for me. But the South had this enormous warmth, not only from temperature, but it's all encompassing. Uh, love the food, uh, dramatic landscapes. The wines are not always that up to scratch. Uh, there's an enormous potential, and I still see it, and it's coming more and more out. Uh, but it was not uh, not necessarily the wine quality. It was more the whole drama of the South. I find that there's more honesty in the wines of the south than possibly in the north. Um, well, in what, no, I'll ask you a question. Why do you think that? I, 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 well, one thing that I like about um, the southern Italians is just, there's a sort of more of an openness and there, there's no kind of secrets. There's no kind of, oh, we don't talk about that sort of thing. They're quite happy to discuss, you know, where, what they do and they also kind of want to ask well, what do you think you know what do you think we should do that kind of thing and i kind of think that that's reflected a little bit more in 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 the wine than in the north where i don't know they they kind of keep it fairly simple and uh, you know there's like from my from my yeah. perspective they don't clean the wines up as much as the wines of the north for example they're not you know, maybe you know you're like, talking about honest rusticity perhaps yeah to a certain extent <laughs> okay we, we, yeah i is, find that charming weird. and and i see what you mean but um there are two points here and um, without but, but also to... but also I, th I think the honesty comes through in the wines of being a little bit more simple and approachable and to be consumed young. sure sure i see your point uh, but like I said, there, 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 are two, there are two things. The first thing is that, um, uh, without wanting to sound arrogant, uh, although I think I've lost that game anyway, <laughs> is, um, uh, firstly, because I am, uh, living a large part of my time in Italy, um, the more you are there, uh, the more you can, but people will tell you everything you want to know. It depends on how you use that information. Um, if it is constructive, um, I, I would talk about that. If it's not constructive to talk about, because then the next time people will not open up about what they're doing, what they're thinking, what's happening, then I would not use that. I'm not talking about self-censorship. It's about a certain discretion. Now, compared to France, for example, um, in France there are never any scandals, which I don't believe. Uh, because every wine producing country has things to, um, you know, um, uh, broom under the, uh, under the, uh, under the, the carpet or under the table. Mm. Um, but they're just way more discreet. Italians are, they are very much open by nature. So you, they tell you everything in good faith. 
sometimes you have, you need to just you know guard them against them. So that's point one. The second thing is that rusticity uh, is not for me necessarily the same as genuinity. Um, you can be quite charmed about uh, the simpleness and openness of certain wines from the south, but they cannot play on a certain top level where I think those wines should be. Now, I don't think that everybody should aim to be, you know, a top producer uh, and uh, just make good, simple wine that everybody enjoys already uh, quite quite a feat to 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 accomplish but i do think that if you want to really talk about the potential for example alianico we want to talk about the uh, the, the, the potential of nerella mascalesa or also for for chiro uh in the south of puglia uh, then you need to have pretty pretty good wine um on that level and um, I think that it's, for me, very important. So uh, as much as I understand genuinity and rusticity and all that, I don't want Italy to be too much seen as that. Uh, I was speaking to Gaia Gaia when, when I was tasting the wines two weeks ago um, at uh, Santa Restituta, and she said something where I thought, I never thought about that. Uh, she said, well, this is uh, our Brunello from this vineyard. Uh, there's a certain rusticity to it, but that's Sangiovese. And, and although I saw what she meant, I didn't believe that that's not how I see Sangiovese. Sangiovese can be like that, but the top is not necessarily rustic. The top can be really refined, like, for example, we saw today in this tasting with the uh, Il Maroneto, uh, Madonna delle Grazie, yeah. uh, 2005. Oh. Do you think that rusticity is often used as, as an excuse? Like, like to say, oh, but that's the charm of the wine that, you know, that, that, that's just an expression of, of, of us and this mm -hmm. place. Like then we first need to find out what we mean uh, by rusticity. So whether we, we talk about the same thing. Tannins and acidity for me is not rustic. No. Um, I think more about a certain, uh, let's say, uh, the Italians would call it contadino style, uh, farmers, uh, wines, uh, which has now become an honor, a banner of honor for many, uh, natural wines yeah. in, in Italy. Yeah. I'm very grateful for natural wines in Italy because they have really, really brought a new dynamic in the whole wine, uh, uh, game in Italy and have brought in lots of new ideas based on evaluation of tradition, which I think is fascinating and was very, very necessary. So thank God for that. Um, but it's not the only thing that I find, uh, important. So rusticity to, to be permissive, to say, well, you know, it's, it's rustic, but it's genuine. You're being per permissive and I, I'm, I'm more demanding than that. Mm. So, um, how long did you work in Berlin for? I spent there uh, 13 years and they really had to drag me screaming and crying away to go to London. I mean, it was a mutual uh, uh, decision uh, because I wanted to move on with wine and in Berlin you could not really move on. So, and I was already traveling so many times to London, five, six times a year, either to, to join for wine shows or to do courses or anything. Uh, so I knew I had to go there and it took me two, two or three years to get used to London, but it was a fantastic springboard to anything else you want to do about wine. This London is the, in Europe, the, the city to, to see this enormous diversity, to learn about the business, uh, the, 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 the amount of tastings that you can go to every day when you're in a trade. It's just mind boggling. So what, was there anything in particular that brought you to London apart from the fact that the it was knowledge. a bigger market? 
The knowledge, yeah, the knowledge, the availability of knowledge. Uh, in Berlin, I couldn't find any teachers, there weren't any courses, uh, uh, and certainly not on, on Italian wine, whereas in London there was so much, so much what you can learn. There was the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, which is still there. There's the Institute of Master of Wine. Uh, there, there are many uh, tastings organized by generic bodies, Wines of Spain, Wine of South Africa, Wines of Australia. Unfortunately, there is no generic body for Italy, but you get the picture. So there's an enormous, an enormous availability of, of knowledge and information. So you can very quickly uh, get a high level of sophisticated knowledge about wine in general, that's the, the you know the, the the great attraction of London. Was there someone at that time who was considered to be? Oh, that's the, that's the reference point as far as a communicator or wine educator. That's the reference point for Italian wine. Was there was there such a person? It was time? not um, at that time. Well, yeah, it's 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 uh, it was Burton Anderson from America, and uh, and and for me, my the, if you can say something like that because it sounds a bit hysterical. The guru for me is Nicholas Belfridge because he managed in his books to write about Italy in a very critical and at the same time extremely evocative way. You just knew this man was deeply in love with that country and highly critical. And I just hope that I have a tiny bit of that capacity that he has when I'm writing about Italian wine. What were you first doing when you moved to London as far as work? Um, I started to work as a sommelier for the Conran Group. I worked at La Pont de la Tour, uh, which was a French restaurant because it was close to the city. It had an international list. Um, I started, I think, in 2003, just after I did a vintage at um, Aubage Liberal in Bordeaux. Um, and they, their, uh, their customers were mostly uh, city uh, folks. And so high rollers, and and so the list was very heavy on Bordeaux, very heavy on Burgundy, and lots of Australian wines, but the top, and um, and there were also Italian wines, but there's more the stereotypical things like your Sassicaias, your Ornellaias, Tignanello, that featured very happily, heavily Brunellos that I would not consider to be of any special quality except that they are, have well-known names and were very expensive. Um, that was the, the Italian section. When I moved from being a sommelier <coughs> to a wine buyer for Pont de la Tour because also had a, uh, a wine merchant connected to it, I started to increase very, very rapidly the size of Italian wine uh, to cover most regions. Uh, and there was quite a lot to be found in London. I had difficulty to get the French sommelier team behind me. As soon as the head sommelier became a German or was a German girl, those wines were flying. Um, the Burgundies were always very strong uh, in that restaurant because we were known for that time. We had a list of 1,500 positions, which was huge at that time. Um, I sold also quite a lot of Pinot Grigio, I admit. And we sold also quite a, a lot of plain, very simple uh, French wines. But I always believe that that would give you basically the basis to buy the more expensive, more interesting stuff that would not sell so quickly. So you win some, you lose some. Mm. What was the general market for Italian wines like in, in London and the UK? Misunderstood. I think misunderstood. Um, things like uh, Chianti Classico 
were very difficult to sell because the, because of the Chianti tag. There's, of course, a difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico. Uh, but that was what you saw in the supermarkets. At, uh, and I tasted a lot of supermarket wines because I'm always quite curious, what is the general quality of those wines? And um, that didn't do Chianti Classico any good, although we have really fantastic Chianti Classico. Brunello and Amarona were brands, considered brands, so it didn't matter who was on that list, one would survive, uh, su- uh, survive as long as you had this Amarona or you had a Brunello because it was basically, like I said, considered a brand. Um, Suave, very, very difficult, uh, unless wine by the glass because then it was seen as a cheap option. Um, and then the Super Tuscans, that, those, those were the expensive wines at the price level with, uh, with not entirely, but in going in the direction of, uh, of Bordeaux. How do you think that the, the perception of Italian wine has evolved since then? Well, I think it's much more diverse, but uh, when I'm in the States, especially in New York, I find their level of knowledge far more sophisticated and it's not so easily explained, uh, except for the fact that there are perhaps more Italian immigrants uh, in New York. So that's certainly a push factor. But there is no generic Italian body that promotes wines of Italy, like there is wines of Australia, for example, and UK as a parallel. Uh, that doesn't exist. So knowledge is very difficult to build up, but the Americans have it much more than the Brits. I think perhaps it has to do with the fact that the Brits are a bit more um, at ease trading for more than a thousand years in, in Bordeaux, for example. Uh, it's getting better because we're on the wave of indigenous grape varieties, and that's actually being delivered quite brilliantly by Italian wines. Do you feel that you tend to kind of um, have more interest in particular style of wines, uh, particularly in terms of Italy? Do you kind of lean more towards the traditional or low intervention I, I don't like to use the the other n-word i guess <laughs> it's a very dangerous discussion topic would be here all night but do you do you find that you do kind of gravitate gravitate more towards those kinds of wines um i would i'm, I'm more interested in smaller producers perhaps um, who of course if you are a wine writer or a sommelier or a or, or I think for those groups, they are more interested in the, you know, in the, in the less known, perhaps the more esoteric. Yeah, a little bit. There, there is a little bit of that, the, the, the unknown, and also because you can test out whether whether people appreciate your taste, sure, and what makes you uh, perhaps a, a, a signature vicar in as a sommelier, as a wine bar, as a wine writer. You're yeah. very much talking about your taste. You sell yourself nowadays. If you talk about things that yeah. everyone talks about, yeah. you kind of go, yeah. "Well, why would I listen to yeah. you?" You're yeah. saying whatever and it's, else you're and saying. It's, but there's, of course, this element of uh, of um, exploration and discovery, uh, and then see see hopefully becoming a trend. I'm not driven by that. What I'm driven by is I'm looking for the genuine. Um, that it often coincides with what you would name natural wines um, might be, uh, perhaps because, like I said today, the natural wines in Italy come from a different background than the French natural wines. It's more about incorporating or going back to, to tradition, reinvestigating what your grandfather did and not your father who started to use stainless steel and barrique and planted Cabernet and Merlot while your granddad was doing the indigenous grape varieties and uh, using uh, the old trellising systems. 
um, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm driven by that, that discovery, that process, because I want to show and discover also for myself the genuine Italy. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean the highest quality of wines, but certainly the most original. I certainly hope you're enjoying this chat about a fantastic wine journalist. And speaking of wine journalism, I really want to tell you about Wine Companion, which is one of Australia's most important wine publications and references for wine, particularly wine made in Australia. Wine Companion originally started as James Halliday's way of um, cataloguing all of the tasting notes and reviews and scores he'd done for Australian wines, which are submitted to him every year, but evolved into a wine publication, which comes out very regularly, and also an amazing website where you can actually buy a digital subscription. Wine Companion have partnered with the podcast to offer listeners of the podcast a fantastic discount on any of their subscription packages. Basically, if you go to the website winecompanion.com.au, when you go through to purchase any of their different subscription packages, if you put in the special code INTREPID30, they will give you a 30% discount. Huge savings, wonderful opportunity to read uh, from a, a whole repository of articles and wine information. So I hardly recommend going there and let them know that you heard about the, the discount from the podcast. How did your career in the UK evolve? Like, at what point did you sort of start to get into talking about wine and maybe writing about wine and that kind of thing? Well, when I was working as a wine buyer, um, and no longer as a sommelier, I was um, having this fledging <laughs> wine merchant at Le Pont de la Tour, uh, which didn't make any profit. And it didn't make any profit because, uh, not only because the wines were steeply priced, but it didn't have any um, instruments to actually sell the wine. We didn't have a website that worked. Uh, we couldn't do deliveries. Uh, except for the barrel and then um, it was only local and so we need to get punters in and I um, set up the uh, so-called speed master classes because um, I was confronted almost every day with three or four importers who would come with winemakers and I didn't have time for that because we were very low on staff and at the beginning I was annoyed but then I thought I need to actually instrumentalize this uh, enormous potential of uh, winemakers that comes into uh, London and uh, you know get customers in so I uh, suggested to um, the importers that's fine bring them along but um, why don't you uh, let me have them for an hour in the evening and so I did about uh, 150 160 of those master classes in the years that I wow. was there and it was big fun because it was only an hour so it was people came in droves I had a little discount system <laughs> attached to it and uh, you got an amazing uh, uh, amount of, of winemakers and they came from everywhere. Australia was especially strong because they were really fun to put in front of the audience. That's where my, uh, my, my long-lasting love affair with Australia came from. Very concise, very good in explaining things in a very simple way. Great wines and entertaining, whereas, for example, I had Italian winemakers, she shall not be named, who would say, my wines speak for themselves and would say nothing for a whole hour. 
that's really mortifying if you, you're running those things. But the Italians were particularly uh, interesting because you could challenge really their, their thoughts. But we had winemakers from everywhere, from, from Germany, from Portugal, from California, everywhere, Argentina. I took everyone in because it was the beauty of having all these, you know, this possibility of getting them in, speaking for an hour about the wine, present their wines, get feedback from the audience. The audience takes a couple of bottles away. So that's where I basically started to, to become vocal. And that would have given you, of course, the opportunity to listen to, you know, the, the winemakers from all these different parts of the world. That was and, certainly and interesting, well. but most of the time I was actually interviewing them because a lot of them, except for the Aussies, um, were not able really to talk to an audience at all. Um, so I really had to help them getting the story out. And um, Did many of them require um, translation? Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, but that was that was fun too because that looked really genuine mm. and uh, and very charming. And when they start in broken English, you know, you already have the pu- public at their knees. Eating out of your hand. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. And uh, if the wine is good, then that's a fantastic uh, hour. And it's only an hour, so people are really exciting and it's a good format. After an hour, you lose everybody's patience and attention, including mine. You might not need to say much, but you can say a little bit. That the wine can't just speak for itself. But even if, even saying a little bit, can no, make I a wanted bit to, to hear their story. Sure. I wanted to, uh, and and also, uh, it sounds really arrogant. They needed training. They needed to understand if they wanted to sell their wine. They needed to be able to, you know, converse and tell tell the background and the story in in very few words and just you know make it speak for themselves. It's absolutely fine. Wine needs to speak for himself, but you're selling the story in the end. Somebody's got to tell that the winemaker or the owner or the producer. Producer, mm-hmm. he or she is the ideal person to do so. So, can you tell me how you kind of what, what sort of path you followed to end up where you are now, as far as writing for, um, you know, amongst other places uh, for Jancis Robinson? Well, Jancis Robinson is my uh, is my that's where I write the most, and I do a little bit of things for Decanter mm-hmm. once a year. I do a little bit for Wine and Spirit in uh, Wines and Spirit in America, but uh, Jancis is. Uh, absolutely my my home and i'm very lucky because uh there's no editing there's you know i can write about anything i like and that's it's a huge huge thing uh, that you as a journalist have that freedom i'm deeply deeply grateful for that uh and i can express and talk about anything that i really really like and find compelling um that's something to really treasure um basically it started purely by by incident uh, i went to a lunch where she was too it was a winemaker lunch or it was a producer from uh chianti classico uh, a high net worth in- individual who i thought was playing with wines and uh, making a, a wine that was not expressive of its origin uh, well made but it didn't do anything so i asked lots of nasty questions to <laughs> Salamas who was there and that i think attracted jenza's uh, attention and she asked me would you like to write uh, something for my website and uh, from that it took off. Uh, I then moved uh, partially to Italy uh, because my partner uh, was moving there and I had already started to do uh, a kind of brokerage with small estates. They were almost all specialized in organics to come back to your previous question whether that would interest me more. What a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, um, I was also thinking uh, while we had our little break that um, I was tasting some Lugana two years ago and that's, and that's very difficult to, to find in any organic way and it was one, it was an old producer. Doesn't all the Lugana go to Germany anyway? Yeah. And he was one, cheeky, he was one, uh, or the couple was one that made really absolutely genuine, fantastic, crystal clear Lugana, but it was not uh, mm. organic. Yeah. Uh, do you, 
do you think that there's a bit of um, a conflict at the moment as far as because uh, there's been a bit of discussion about it lately in Australia there's conflict with certification of organic and biodynamic yeah. and saying that you use the practices yeah. and people kind of like do you think that it is a misrepresentation to say that I use these practices yeah. even though you have no certification yeah, yeah. okay the, uh, I, I often see the the the, the uh, the reverse in which producers look for the organic certification for its own sake and using it as a marketing tool mm. I'm much more adverse against that or much more adverse when it happens um, when uh, it, for, for a journalist it's very easy to find out if people are genuine doing the thing they say yeah. you and it's often not even just a vineyard uh, I can often tell more from looking into the winery then looking into the vineyard, but the vineyard is also a very, very important key. So when people start to talk about it and you ask questions, um, you should be able to find out in, in a couple of minutes whether this is genuine. The thing with the certification, at least in Europe, I don't know what it is in Australia, is that there are 40 different certifying bodies having 40 different sets of criteria. In Europe or in Italy? In Europe. In Europe, okay. uh, And so you can choose as a producer, uh, and I don't mean it in a bad way, uh, you can choose uh, whoever you like or whatever uh, you know institute you like. Um, and, and so there's already that. So there's no, you know, a coherent set of one pair of one set of, of, of criteria to say this is organic. Often uh, people dread the bureaucracy behind it and some of them don't want to uh, adhere to it because in some years like 2014 it would have meant that, that it would have ruined their whole harvest. Now I am personally believing that there is no way round organics but that's my personal opinion. I can easily check as a journalist whether people are genuine in organics or use it as a marketing. In organics per se, I am not interested. I see it as a tool to get greater transparency in the wine. If it's used for anything other, like I said, I don't care. For me, like uh, you know, and I apologize, you know, if this does sound a bit crass, but I I encounter a lot of wines which do have certification in organics and biodynamics. And I taste the wines, and I find them to be just completely uninteresting. And I find them to be <laughs> because a little bit too because clean. Because they're not like, part of of the of the this, instrument you know, to to create a wine that's genuine. And and for me, that that just feeds into this huge divide between viticulture and winemaking. Mm -hmm. And so, at, at one Another end, topic, particularly in Australia, uh, you have um, some really exciting winemakers who are using you know, low intervention techniques and are happy to talk about, oh, you know, I did 100% you know, whole bunch or, you know, we're using, you know, putting it in amphoras and stuff like that. But they potentially don't talk about the viticulture because, you know, they can't say it's organic or they can't say it's biodynamic. Yeah. You know, they might be buying the grapes. And at the other end, you have um, some, you know, beautifully grown grapes that just get there's something that goes wrong with them in the cellars and then they maybe need to clean them up a little yeah. bit and they just become a little bit empty and so this huge gap between like these kinds of wines. Well, for me it's it's fairly easy to figure out what a producer is doing and I see it also as my you know my task to find out what he or she is up to what or up to that sounds so negative what what is the philosophy what behind doing, yeah. exactly what, what these people are doing like I said at a certain price point you're not talking about producing commodity you're producing something that expresses origin yeah. or originality and that's what I'm looking for and that is what they also want to make the thing is that if and that is my 
personal opinion, often I think it's they are afraid not to pursue the organic way. And like I said, I'm not interested in the certification process per se, uh, because I see a lot of what you mentioned, a lot of, of certified uh, wines, and especially places like uh, uh, Whole Foods, and you know the wines are not not good at all. It's mm. just from organically grown grapes. And there is, a, what you, whatever you do in the cellar, there is no control over that. Because so, the certification is just in the grower. Exactly. So I, I found it a little bit hollow, but um, it can be, can be, you know, a good lead. Uh, but I see, see that more as a marketing ploy and to get into uh, uh, shops like, uh, like Whole Foods. The, the, I'm, I am that cynical. Mm. Yes, I am that cynical. Mm. But m m most of the time when I talk to, to producers, they, they're this halfway road. They do the indigenous fermentation. They have the tronconic oak. Uh, they they uh, have a high plant density, but they don't want to do the organics. And what I find so curious about this is you're already more than halfway down the path where you're looking for more genuine expression yeah. of your patch of dirt. Yeah. Why stop there? And it's fear. I think it's fear. It comes from either losing fruit, and I can understand it very well because yeah. basically it, for me in a state or a producer, it needs to be viable, economically viable. If not, people lose interest in it, and logically so. Um, and the other thing is, um, by the, um, the, the, the following of protocols that they have learned in, in logical schools, um, which, which say that you need to do that and then that, and that yes. to have a risk-free wine. Yes. Uh, and that's an economic decision, which I understand again, but, no, but in, but in every aspect, these about protocols risk. are basically nonsense. It's about risk-taking. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, like the the risk of well, completely removing chemicals take, or irrigation yeah, from your vineyards. Yeah, but you need vineyards. to take a, a, a knowledgeable risk. Absolutely. Just risking because then you can have a, a wine that you can label natural but makes no sense. And you need to be comfortable with it too. I wouldn't push anybody, but I'm, I am curious why you would do the indigenous thing and not the rest. You need to progress. But that's what I find interesting is that like I visited um, producers who converted to organic or biodynamic viticulture and they talked about, oh, you know, we trialed it in one pass when we thought the results were so wonderful that we converted everything across. Yeah. But then the wines continued to be made the same way. Yeah. And, and at the same time, you know, winemakers who, oh, I'm going to try, you know, oh, I'm going to put some wine on skins or I'm going to extend the lees contact that kind of thing. They do, they experiment with it, they love the results and so they start to do more and more of that wine. But no one seems to be doing the whole way through. Well, not no one. Well, but, but I don't believe in revolution. I believe in evolution. Yeah. Uh, and not everybody can be at the vanguards of change or be in a maverick position for 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 many reasons. And and Money, who am I? Yeah. Time. But who am I to judge? Yeah. Who am I to? Because I think that it needs to be an economical, viable business. Yes. Uh, in every sense, because otherwise it makes no sense. Um, the, the, the careful one step at a time approach, I've seen that uh, uh, being applied successfully too. Mm. Uh, it's just basically to be convinced, okay, I can do it, and then get more and more courage. So I, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, most of the time, I'm, well, not most of the time, but in several cases, I met really very, very left field, radical, natural wine producers who were wearing Gucci shoes. So, which for me translates into there is a financial backup that if that goes tits up, 
it doesn't matter because you know the financial risk is not that big sure i'd rather have somebody who then is not more careful and and is then convinced by what happens what i find really fascinating is when they have an agronomist who helps them on the way and they see the change in the vineyard when i was doing a project in uh in sicily we were i was working with uh, alessandro filippi from suava and he was a consultant for a cantina sociale a very tiny one near erice and we were trying to you know we were felt we felt immediately in love with all these old alberello there were so many of them and nobody made any money out of it and uh, we tried to make an organic wine and uh, get that produced by the Cantina Sociale under our name and with screw cap because we wanted to focus on the American and the UK market. And But these were like contadini farmers. And one of them had also an apple orchard and olives. And he um, applied only part of Alessandro's uh, organic uh, philosophy uh, to his vineyard and then told us the year after that he had the best apple harvest ever because the bees had returned that is interesting yeah when the effect is so clear that they then are convinced and then you don't have to check them you don't have to safeguard the process anymore you have convinced them yeah that's that was for me a very exciting think, moment i think that's a perfect example of yeah. you know the wine doesn't speak for itself the you know the, someone who just works in you know is, is in this cantina or is in you know just is a grower you show them the wine, you go, look, can you see how much better the wine is? And they go, ah, maybe. But but when they actually can see, they can see the where they're working and they see the yeah. you know, biodiversity being reintroduced back yeah. into the environment yeah. and that, you know, they go, wow, that's Yeah, and, a big and difference. basically you're looking at a, a system that, that's basically holistic, right? One part is connected to the other and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. But it is very easy to become totally esoteric about it. A lot of the natural wines output do not convince me and a lot does. But mm -hmm. not because it's natural, just because I find it far more compelling, interesting, textural, more, more, you know, fascinating, uh, more original. Mm. But um, with skin fermented white wines, for example, a lot of them for me taste exactly the same. So yes. I wonder. They're, they're okay, as much technique as It's as fantastic. Varic. They stay two weeks in the fridge and they don't change. But I don't really, I, I don't see the transparency in this. So. You know, but it's 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 a long way, but we're 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 on the way. So, um, for regular listeners of my podcast or you know viewers of my yeah. my YouTube channel, they would know that I uh, have a great love of Italian grape varieties being grown in Australia, mm -hmm. and this is something that you have been talking a lot about recently, mm -hmm. and particularly this weekend at the Melbourne Food and Wine mm -hmm. Festival. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why you're so excited about Italian grape varieties in Australia? Uh, that goes back for a long while when I was working in Berlin and we in that restaurant, uh, and we also had uh, winemakers coming over who just wanted to see their wine in, in, you know, on the shelves where we were uh, because Berlin was so funky and new and you know, everybody wanted to go there. And one of them told me uh, that the French uh, uh, varieties are so much better because uh, you can make great wines out of them anywhere on the planet. Yes. And uh, when I arrived in London, the first Italian grape variety from Australia that I saw was Barbera from Crittenden. And wow. I bought it, okay. I think via uh, Old Bins, because that was the most exciting and new wine shop that uh, you know was, was around. And it was truly like that. And, but, and, and I wrote him a letter. He did that at the time. You wrote letters. You didn't have email. Or um, you did have email, but I used the letter. So, and I said, well, very nice wine, but um, it doesn't uh, taste uh, like Barbera at all. Mm. And to which um, Gary um, actually sent a reply saying, well, but um, it 
cannot be the same like Barbera Dalba because it's not from Barbera Dalba. Mm. And then I forgot about it. Um, then I was tasting wine with Jane Faulkner, who is the um, the chief of the uh, Australian Alternative uh, Variety wine, wine Show. Exactly. And she said, one of these one of these days I will actually have. Oh, you have to. Guest. Oh, yeah. One of these it's days. Fascinating. When she has some time. It's fascinating to talk to her. And so she said, "Do you do you judge?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. I've been judging for the Canter World Wine Awards and blah blah blah." And I said, well, come over. And she said, "Because there's a lot of Italian grape varieties." And I thought, and I remembered this Italian winemaker saying mm. it doesn't travel. And I was thinking of the the, the Crittin and Barbera. So I said, yeah, I'm coming. And um, when I tasted those wines, I was pretty impressed by the original expressions of these Italian varieties. And for me, it's the Australian miracle. Because without having visited, most producers just you know had no qualms in admitting that they were never gone, had never been to Italy to actually see what the originals were like. Just had yes. a go at it and made wonderful wines. That was very impressive. From that moment on, I thought, well, um, it has found a second home. Mm. It's very exciting for me. Yeah. You know, of course, I love Italian wines, but you know, I, I have the love of Italian varieties as well. And so, you know, I'm 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 so enthusiastic to try more wines. And I think that you know, people like Chalmers, who have been on the podcast, and and you know, there's a wonderful vineyard in the Adelaide Hills, and there's a fantastic vineyard uh, up in um, the Riverina. And, you know, these, like, they're, what's exciting for me is that there are people who are just buying small parcels of fruit and they're just trying different things and they're changing the language. It seems that there's no barriers uh, when it comes to, to Italian or Mediterranean varieties to have uh, to experiment the hell out of it. Times have changed, of course, but uh, the French varieties just doesn't perhaps... They're too too referred uh, and too well established to to do really crazy things with them to see how far you can push limits. With the Italian varieties, there is no such barrier. You can do whatever you like with them and, and um, uh, do as many experiments as you like. And the outcome is often extremely good. Mm. And it helps, I think, it inspires and it gives a new dynamic and it helps the thing brings map on uh, the, it helps to bring things on the map that previously were overlooked uh, so you know it's a win-win situation for everyone absolutely yeah. Walter I uh, just wanted to say uh, it's been fantastic chatting with you and, and sitting in on some and of your you. tastings this weekend Thank you. Uh, I really do appreciate your time um, is there anything that you've got coming up apart from more writing on Jancis Robinson have you got any projects that you'd like to share with uh, um, the listeners a project that I'm really hesitant about I would love to do is um, I am looking at the vineyards in Alto Piemonte, uh, it's going to be probably Bramatero or Lesona. Um, what I wanted to do was um, uh, there's basically a, a possibility of a cooperation between Mac Forbes, me, Cristiano Garella, and uh, Giovanni Angeli from uh, Masolino from mm. um, the Serra Lunga, exactly. Um, and um, that we would produce a wine of, uh, of Nebbiolo or Spanna from that area. Um, I was a little bit naive. I went in there and thought, okay, if we find a nice vineyard and growers sell the fruit, then we would start off with this cuvee. Uh, but it seems to need more commitment and that might mean purchasing a vineyard. And that should be well thought because in the end like I said it needs to be economic viable sure. economic viable thing but it excites me it's, that's something that might be extracurricular 
to to my writing for Genesis, which I will continue. Fantastic. And the re- the website is jensisrobinson.com. Yes. If people would like to follow you on social media, then it would be Walter Speller. That's for Twitter. On Twitter. And the same for Facebook. On Facebook. But basically, I'm very lazy on Facebook. I just feed in the Twitter. Yeah. That's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Once again, my sincerest thanks to Walter Speller for generously uh, donating some of his valuable time whilst he was here in Australia, and it was certainly uh, a wonderful experience. I learned a lot just talking with him. And of course, thank you for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and as I mentioned on every episode, you can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast can be found on Twitter under at The Vincast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find my Facebook page, so please do hit that like button. Uh, you can come and visit my YouTube channel uh, if you look for Intrepid Wino channel. Uh, that's where I uh, do my Let's Taste videos where I uh, open up Australian wines and share my impressions. Uh, make sure you subscribe to that. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on various different podcast hosting uh, platforms, including iTunes. And subscribing to the podcast means that you get the episode as soon as it becomes available every week. Uh, you can also share your impressions of the podcast, which I would really love for you to do, by leaving a five-star rating and a bit of a review uh, just to let me know which episodes you enjoyed or which guests you might want to hear from. All that information is available at intrepidwino.com, including ways of getting in contact with myself. Uh, And please do. Uh, I'd love to get some feedback about the podcast or about anything that I do as the Intrepid Wino. I look forward to having you on the next episode. But until then, bye.